Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 7. We've talked over the last two times that I've shared with you, uh, two messages of a three-part message, which we will end today. And, and the message, the, the series is about heaven or hell, you choose. And we don't hear a lot about hell in churches anymore. In fact, there are some churches that don't believe in it. But you know what? Whether you believe it or not doesn't make it real or not real. Because it's there whether you believe it or not, because God says so. Jesus talked about it. So if hell's not real, then Jesus didn't tell us the truth. If Jesus didn't tell us the truth, we got bigger problems. So you either believe all of it or you don't believe any of it. And so we talked about hell. It's a place of horrible... And the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of information, but what it does give us is enough to tell me I don't want to go there. Because I see two things out of it. It's a place of horrible, unbelievable torment. Worse than anything you can imagine happening here on this earth. And the second thing about it is it is forever. It is eternal with no hope of change, no hope of getting out, no hope of anything. No hope. No hope. And then two weeks ago, we looked at the other alternative, heaven. We saw that it was the presence of God, fullness of joy, fullness of peace. And everything that God ever intended, the very best of God is there and it's made for us. And then we saw that the Bible tells us that hell was not made for man but it was made for the devils, for the devil and for the demons that followed in his rebellion. And we'll look at that a little bit this morning. So the question is, and let's look at this verse first of all. Matthew chapter 7. So the question is, well, let's read it first, then we'll ask the question. Matthew 7, verse 13. Jesus is talking. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. We're talking about heaven and hell here. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So Jesus is telling us here, while I'm talking, go to Luke 13. Jesus is telling us here, that out of this choice, the majority of people are going to make the wrong choice. The majority of people are choosing a path that's leading them to this destruction that we've talked about. Let's look at Luke. It's here somewhere. Luke 13, 22. And he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And then one of them said to him, Lord... Are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter by the narrow gate. For many, I say, will seek to enter and will not be able. And when the once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you will begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I don't know you and where you're from. And they will begin to say, Well, we ate and drank in your presence. We went to your church. Oh, it doesn't say that, does it? We went to your church. We did the things we were supposed to do. Look at that. And when you taught in the streets, in other words, we were there with you. We know who you are. We know who you are. We watched you work. We enjoyed the work. We sat in church and heard the messages and said, Amen. Isn't it wonderful? What a wonderful feeling here. What a great singing. But I will say to you in verse 27, I tell you, I don't know you. Notice he doesn't say anything about what they did. He's talking about a relationship, but I don't know you. Yeah, you were here with me. You saw what I did. You maybe even participated in it, but I don't know you. 
I don't have a relationship with you. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. That word's going to be important to us. There there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourself thrust out. So here's the question for this morning. If God created hell for Satan and the demons that rebelled with him, and he did not create it for man, and God's a loving God, why would he send people that he loves to a place he didn't make for them? That's a fair question to ask. And just because we're in church and we've been here a while doesn't mean we may not have that question in the back of our mind. It's such a question that there literally are people out there that profess to be Christians and pastors who profess to be Christian pastors who literally will tell you there is no hell. Why? Because a loving God ultimately will not send people to Oh yeah, there may be a temporary thing that they go through that's difficult, but it's really to redeem them. It's really their last wake-up call. But when they, get, when they come through this, they will be saved because God would never send somebody He loves to hell. But that's not what these verses indicate. These verses indicate there's coming a judgment day when there will be a great separation. There's another verse in Matthew 25 that says, Many are chosen, but fewer, many are called, but fewer chosen. That follows a parable where he talks about a wedding feast where the people of the family didn't show up, they had excuses. And so he says, We'll go into the highways and byways and invite people to come in. And so they invited him to come in, and the master of the house goes up to one of them, and they're not dressed in wedding clothes. And he cast them out even though they had invited them in and said, what was that all about? You know, I never really understood that until a class in school of ministry a few weeks ago when it suddenly hit me what it was about. They were invited in. They were called. But they didn't put on the appropriate robe for the occasion and therefore they were not chosen. And the parable is talking about this. God calls all of us to himself. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. On that cross, Jesus paid for the sin of the world. Anyone and everyone that has or ever will live, that price on that cross paid for their sin. And He calls all of us. But only those who put on the robe are chosen. We're going to look at the robe today. Because the focus of today's message is we've looked at heaven or hell and we've looked at heaven. And anyone in their right mind will say, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. Today we're going to look at how that decision is made. Because I'm not going to assume that because you've been coming here for five years, ten years, twenty years, twenty-five years, that you understand what the Word of God says. We're going to look today at the root, the basic root of the choice that's made. It's not the church you go to. It's not the program you watch. It's not the Bible that you read. We're going to look at what it is, and to do that, we're going to look at the origin of the choice. We're going to look at the origin of the choice. All right. So go with me to Ezekiel 28. We're going to peek into the window of heaven
at a time much earlier. Now, if you go back to the beginning of this chapter, which we're not going to, you'll see that it's a prophecy that God told Ezekiel to speak to the prince of Tyre, which is a a nation that was just north of Israel. And he goes on through that, basically saying that you professed the king of Tyre was walking around talking and acting as if he was God. And so in the first ten verses, God is through the prophet, putting him in his place by saying, you may think you're a god, but you're a man, and I'm going to prove to you that you're a man. But then he picks up on this, and you have to understand this about Old Testament prophecy, especially the big prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah and some of the others. Very often there's more than one level of meaning. There's more than one message, because a prophecy is a message. So very often there's a direct message from God through that prophet to whoever is specifically addressed to. And that's the first ten verses of this chapter. But then, often, God will speak another message at another level, either to Israel of the future, or about the Messiah, or about the people, about our age, or about an age to come. In this case, it's like that. There's a message now that's going to go, and it'll be obvious when we get into it, that's not now long, no longer just talking about the Prince of Tyre, but it's talking about the one who's behind him. Remember when Peter told Jesus, no, you, know, you, know, you don't need to go to the cross. And Jesus says, he didn't say, Peter, get out of my way. He said, get behind me, Satan. He was speaking to the one that was influencing Peter to do that. In, 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 in uh, Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, it talks about spiritual warfare and says, you don't wrestle against flesh and blood but we wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers in heavenly places. So what's going on behind the prince of Tyre is another prince, a spiritual prince, and that's the one he's going to talk about now. Okay. And it become obvious as we go down through this. So this is a background now, back to the root of this choice we're talking about. We're going to look now at the one who made the first choice. And you were in Eden... Let's go back to verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation. That means a crying out for the king of Tyre. And say to him, Thus says the Lord, You are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. That certainly wasn't the king of Tyre. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. This guy was had bling. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was an incredibly beautiful, incredibly, it says, the perfection of your beauty. The very best that God could put in him, he'd put in him. The workmanship of your timbrels, that's a musical, that's a tambourine, that's a musical instrument. And the pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. So there's some evidence here that this being was in charge of worship to some degree. But here's who is. You were the anointed cherub or angel who covers. The word covers there means to surround. So the one he's talking about here is the most splendid creature that he's created. Created. 
created. Created. That he, God created. This is important. The most beautiful creature God created. And his role, he is the anointed. So he is the senior angel. And his role is to surround the throne of God. So he is in the position of of an angel, a created being, at the highest level of place of honor with the highest responsibility that can be given to a created being. Be careful of high positions. You walk... You are in the, and I, you are the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. It's God speaking. You are on the holy mountain of God, and you walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. We don't know exactly what it was. That could be the angels. But he's in the presence of God. You were perfect or complete in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity. Remember the word we just read? Because there was iniquity in you, you couldn't get into the kingdom. Until iniquity was found in you. Now this iniquity we're going to look at isn't a bunch of deeds that he did wrong. They come out of it. See, the the, the sin that makes the choice between heaven and hell isn't what you do right or wrong, but what you do right or wrong comes out of something much deeper. And that's what we're going to look at. So many people believe that what sends you to heaven or hell is what you did while you walked on this earth. We're going to look at it, the, the root of it is much deeper and more fundamental than that. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading... Remember when we studied sowing and reaping? Under that series we talked about there was God's kingdom and God operated a certain way in His kingdom. And the one we're reading about now came and perverted that. And he perverted... One of the things the kingdom of God operates in, one of the primary principles, is the principle of sowing and reaping. And sowing and reaping is, a, is an exchange process by which I take what I have and either give it to you or do something for your benefit and, and, and somehow it comes back to me. But, but my motive is giving something to you, doing what's best for you. And we saw that Satan took that principle and he perverted it and turned it around so that it's based on me and not what's best for you or best for God. And we cause that as the world system of buying and selling, of trading of trading. Now, when you go to the store, there's nothing wrong with that. When you go to buy clothes, there's nothing wrong with that. But when you're operating in the things of the kingdom of God, it doesn't work that way. And we've talked about that. But notice here, here's the root of it. See what God says about him? By the abundance of your trading, somehow, this beautiful being was taking the position he had and was working something for his benefit. Somehow, we don't know what it was, because God only showing us what we need to know here. You became filled with violence within you. The word violence there literally means in the Hebrew, listen carefully, a disruption of the divine order. You became filled 
with disrupting or putting out of order the order that God established. See, violence in God's eyes is not, is not doing things His way. Jesus, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, sets some pretty high standards, and one of them is He calls murder when we're angry at our brother and won't forgive him. But see, we read that and say, well, that, that's not murder. I mean, murder is when you shoot somebody, you kill them. But in God's eyes, when we're angry and won't forgive, we're violating the order of God's kingdom. We're violating the order of God's way God has established things. And when you violate His order, the Bible calls that violence in the kingdom of God. So He was producing violence in the kingdom, not running around hitting people. He was beginning to bring in rebellion. That's what we're going to look at. By the abundance of your trading, notice... By this dealing for his own basis, he became filled with violence, with disorder in the kingdom of God within you, and then you sinned. Therefore, I cast you out as a profane thing. Profane there in the Hebrew means polluted. Polluted means it's all there, but something has come into it to ruin it to poison it, to make it unhealthy, unfruitful, of no value. That's why the Bible says a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. You know what leaven is? It's yeast. And what yeast does, yeast, a little bit of yeast added to a lump of dough, when you heat it up, what does it do? It causes the lump to rise and becomes... And what it does is it becomes physically larger, but the leaven adds no nutritional value. Nor does it add any substance. It just fills with air. In other words, it puffs up. But it only takes a little bit of leaven to pollute the loaf. And he says, you became a polluted thing. Because God is a pure God. God is pure purely holy, purely righteousness. There is no unrighteousness in him, nor is there any unrighteousness in heaven because there's going to be a conflict between that unrighteousness and his absolute righteousness. There's going to be a conflict between that unholiness and his absolute unholiness. And one of the two is going to give away, and the one that's going to give away is the unholiness and the unrighteousness. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross because God could have just put his arms around us and forgiven us and brought him to us, but he had to make us righteous again. Because if he just forgave us and draw us to himself, he'd kill us. Because in the presence of absolutely holiness, any unrighteousness dies. It's judged on the spot. So in order to bring us to himself as children, as sons and daughters of God, he had to make us righteous as he is righteous. And that's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God because we're in Christ Jesus who is righteous. 
that's why God went through all that, so he could have us to himself. Because he couldn't have us to himself just because he loves us, because we're still unrighteous. He had to make us righteous as he is righteous. And you're not righteous in your own righteousness. You're righteous because you're in Christ who is righteous. He is your righteousness. Okay. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub. Well, obviously he's still around, so he wasn't destroyed in that sense. The word destroyed means pushed away, made void, break, or end the reign of. It means to push away, make void, or of no effect, break, or end the reign or rulership of. I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. How did he know he was beautiful? Because he began to look at himself. Remember? We'll we'll look at that in a minute. Okay. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. In other words, he began to look at his own beauty and take his eyes off of the one he was there to worship. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. You corrupted your wisdom. In other words, I gave you wisdom... And you corrupted it. And the way you corrupted it is because you started looking at the splendor that I gave you and you began to think it was yours. So I cast you to the ground. That's here. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore I brought fire from your midst. I devoured you and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples were astonished at you. You've become a horror and shall be no more forever. Now that's to the future. All right, let's go to Isaiah 14. Let's look at this scene from a little different angle. Verse 12, Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. Lucifer means light bearer or day star. O son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. And this is how it happened. For you have said in your heart, that's why you've got to watch your heart. Proverbs says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it your heart flow the issues of life. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. The stars of God are the other angels. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the north. I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most... Look at that. I will be like the most high. In those three verses, the first personal pronoun is mentioned six times. I will ascend into heart, into heaven. Actually, seven, in your heart. I will exalt my throne over the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation, on the Father's side. I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. I will be like 
the Most High. By looking at his own splendor and beauty, by looking at what God had given to him and entrusted and made him to be, by looking at himself and taking his eyes off the one who created him and who was the source of everything that he was, he began to become deceived that he was the source of his own beauty and his own splendor. And therefore, ambition began to rise in his heart by saying, if this is who I am and this is who I've made myself to be, then I have every right to be like him. Notice he doesn't say he was going to replace God. He wanted to be like God, but he wanted to make himself. This is very important. He wanted to make himself. He wanted to make himself like God. Well, what happens, of course, is he's cast out. So what is the sin here, the iniquity here? The sin here, by the way, let's go quickly to Philippians chapter 3, just for a contrast here. Excuse me, Philippians chapter, um, it says three on my notes, but it should be two. So I apologize to the translators. Let this, verse five, let this mind be in you, which also is in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not regard robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself. Oh, that's what Lucifer did. He made himself, right? The difference is he made himself of no reputation. He laid his reputation aside. Taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man, and being found in the appearances of man, he humbled himself even further and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now notice, Lucifer is making himself like the Most High. He's making himself an equal with God. But Jesus, the Christ, who was the equal with God, He made himself the other direction. He made himself of no reputation. In other words, he had a reputation, but he didn't hold on to it. He let it go. In fact, the word there is he emptied himself of all his privileges of being the second person of the Godhead, of all of his rights, of all of his prestige, of all of his honor, of all of his glory. He laid them all aside. We know that also because in John 17, in his high priestly prayer to his father before he is to come to die and come back to heaven, he says, restore to me the glory that I had with you before I came. So he's asking for it back once he's finished what he was sent here to do. But notice this. They both made themselves. Lucifer tried to make himself like God. Jesus, who was equal with God, didn't regard it something to be held on to, but he made himself of no reputation. He let it go. But look at the result. Look at the result. Look at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. 
and given him a name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Those in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Two different beings. One makes themselves, had ambition, because he looked at himself, saw the beauty of his creation, and forgot that he was not the creator of his beauty. What you look at and spend your focus at is so critical to what gets in your heart. Well, we got to go on because we'll come back to that. All right. So what was the sin? The sin was rebellion. And what is rebellion? Rebellion is when we begin to look at ourselves as if we are our own creator, as if we are our own source. And we begin to get this attitude, I will ascend. I will make myself. I will improve myself. And what happened to Satan? Well, Luke 10, 18 says, Jesus said, I saw him fall like lightning. There was a war in heaven. He took, he took a third of the angels with him. So he was persuaded. He's very persuasive. He's persuaded a third of the angels that he was worthy to be equal. So there was a rebellion in heaven. But it didn't last long because Jesus said, I saw him fall like lightning to the earth. So he was cast to the earth. That is why the Bible says he's the God of this earth. All right. Second um, Peter 2.4, you don't need to turn there, but it says he's a warning there that tells us not to put a novice in a position of responsibility or authority at a church. Why? Lest because of pride, because they look at their position and they're not mature enough to realize this position was not given me because I'm so special. Because of their immaturity. And that immaturity may be their insecurity. Because of that immaturity, because of being a novice, they get lifted up with pride and then it says fall into the same deceit that Satan fell into when he was cast from heaven with the demons that were cast with him. All right. Now let's go to Genesis and see what he does once he's cast down here. Because God now either creates or recreates the earth. There's two theories on that, and we're not going to get into that this morning because it's not part of our purpose. But we spent time over the last number of months talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We've talked about the Garden of Eden and what it was like in the Garden of Eden. And we've referred to what happens here, but we're going to go into it a little more this morning. So God has created another paradise. He's created an Eden here. And now Satan is going to come in and try to spoil what God's created here. Understand, Satan doesn't care about you. You're not that important to him. You're very important to God. You're not that important to him. Nobody's ever been that important to him. The only one that really got his attention was Jesus. And the reason he was after him is he's trying to spoil everything for the one who cast him out, who wouldn't give him what he thought he was entitled to. See, he believed he was entitled to sit there equal with God. My own belief 
but I can't say the scriptures fully lay this out. My own belief is that he wanted to take the place of the Son of God. He wanted that position next to the Father. That's my personal belief. And that's why he hates Jesus so much. And so he'll do whatever he can to spoil what he wants to do. So now we have the garden. Ever this beautiful creation paradise here on earth like it is in heaven. Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, see he's got to come into this garden in the form of a, of a body. We've talked about that on Wednesday nights. He can't just float in and stand up and talk to her. He's got to take on a body of some kind of, some kind of being that has a, human, a physical body, not necessarily human. So he enters a serpent. And he says, he said to the woman, Has God indeed said to you, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tree of the fruits of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall surely not die. In other words, God lied to you. For God knows something that you don't know. That's what he's going to say. God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be, look at this, like God. Isn't that his ambition? To be like the Most High God? So he's now trying to sell this same thought to the man that God has, and the woman that God has created to lure them into this very same, into his kingdom and under his rulership under his he's trying to establish his own kingdom to do that he has to get others to recognize him as their God but he doesn't say that to them does he he doesn't come and say look don't trust him come trust me I'll be a better God to you than he is he's a deceiver he's a con artist and I've taught you this before. Deceivers never tell you what they're really after. A pickpocket doesn't come up and say, would you mind moving your hand, please? Because I need to put my hand in your back pocket and take your wallet. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> no, he distracts you by bumping into you, calling your attention somewhere else so that you're not watching what he's doing when he takes what he wants. That's what's going on here. What he's trying to do is he's trying to... He, he got kicked out of God's kingdom and so he's trying to establish his own counter kingdom. And he's recruited a third of the angels and now he's going to recruit God's crowning creation, his man and his woman. But he's going to do it not by saying, come join my kingdom. Why would they do that? So he's got to begin to plant thoughts in their mind goes back to Wednesday night, renewing your mind. You've got to begin to plant thoughts in their mind, and he does it with questions. Has God said that? And then when she listened to him, he took it to another level. He said, as you understand, you can't trust him. He lied to you, and he's trying to keep something from you that he knows you're entitled to. The assumption is, if you'll come listen to me, I'll make you, I'll give you what he's keeping from you. And of course, what he's really after, and this is so important to understand today, what he's really after is to have them out of God's kingdom and under his authority. 
Understand, human beings, the way we're made, you can never be the authority in your life, in the spirit realm. You are either under God's authority or you're under the authority of this kingdom. There's, no, you're, there's, no, there's, no, there's nobody that's their own man or woman. If you think you're your own man or woman, you're his. And you're deceived. And he wants you to think you're your own because that way you won't realize where he's taking you and what he's leading you to do. So he's trying to bring recruits now out of God's crowning creation over into his kingdom. And the way he's going to do this is by getting them to eat something that God's told them not to eat. The way he's going to do this is by getting them to disobey a direct commandment of God. If you look over in Romans chapter 5, around verse 12 or so, you'll see that talk about the sin that's in the model or the similitude or the example of Adam's sin. Adam was given a known command. Don't eat of that tree. And what does Satan tempt him to do through his wife? To do exactly what God told him not to do. Because the moment he did that, he took things into his own hands and he rebelled against God. Rebellion doesn't mean you yell at, get mad at, spit at. Rebellion just means you deny He's your Creator and you begin to act as if you're in charge of your life yourself. I have my rights. I have my rights. Well, let's look at this in just a moment or so before we go on. Let's go to uh, 1 John chapter 3. Verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. I'm going to read that again. Whoever commits sin automatically commits lawlessness. Why? Because sin is lawlessness. The root of sin is not being subject to God's law, God's authority. God is the creator. I will make myself. I will do this myself. I have my rights. It's my life. I mean, the world we live in is pervaded by this, saturated by this. We are slaughtering innocent babies in the place that God designed for their safety and their protection in a mother's womb at the altar of the idol of my body and my rights. To the point that we'll deny that that child is a human being in one area... But if that mother's in a car accident, 
Do you know that that child that's not a child for the sake of abortion is a child for the sake of getting insurance recovery? Under the law. So it can be a child in, if, I, if it's convenient for me in this category, but it's not a child if it's inconvenient me for over here. That's the deception of looking at me and I'm my own boss and it's my body and it's my rights and it's my privileges because it's all about me. And that's the deception of this kingdom over here. Because when you walk in that deception, you're walking under the authority and the spiritual leadership of the original one to rebel against that authority. You're in a different kingdom. The Bible calls it a different domain. Okay. Now we've got good news coming for you, so hang on. All right. 1 Samuel 15. Don't turn there. But it's the story of King Saul. When God had instructed Saul, and this was the second incident of this, God had instructed through the prophet Samuel, God had instructed the King Saul to go and destroy the Amalekites. And he said, utterly destroy them. Everything that breathes, from the, from the animals right up to King Agag, Agag. And so Saul went and he mostly destroyed them. What they kept is the best of the sheep and they preserved the king's life. And Samuel shows up the next day and says, have you done what God said to do? He says, yes, I've utterly destroyed them all. Well, what, well, 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 then what's that bleeding I hear of sheep? Oh, 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 oh. He goes on to say, well, the people, they wanted to keep them to perform a sacrifice to God. That's what God said to do. So we've kept them out so that we can, we can destroy them, but, but to perform a, a worshipful sacrifice to God. See, there are people that are bringing worship to God, but they're not doing what God said. And he goes on to say, obedience is better than sacrifice. See, that verse is taken out of context and people quote it to say, well, it's better to obey God than to have to make a sacrifice to Him to make up for your disobedience. That's not what that verse is talking about at all. That verse is talking about sacrifice in that verse means... Instead of doing what God said, I do something that I want to do and present it to Him because that looks like a good thing. It's doing what I want to do instead of exactly what God wanted to do. And Samuel says, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Well, what is witchcraft? Witchcraft is when you turn to demonic spirits for your guidance and for your power and for the things that you should be turning to God for. That's what witchcraft is. Witchcraft is submitting your life to demonic spirits to do for you what God intended to do for you. And then he goes on to say, in addition to that, that stubbornness, because that's a form of rebellion, Stubbornness is as the sin of idolatry. Because what stubbornness is, is I'm right, I'm, gonna, I'm, not, I'm just not going to do it. 
It could be, you may be absolutely right, but I'm just not going to do it. I don't care whether you're right. I don't care if God's right. I don't care what it be. I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. That's lifting yourself up in what you want as an idol. That's worshiping yourself over God. Now, this is what Satan did. This is what he's brought into the garden. And he sold it to that man. And if you read in Romans 5, around verse 12, it says, we were all born into the same sin. You notice that sweet little darling that God gave you? That you nursed and you held in your arms and you burped and you changed and went goo-goo-ga-ga and you taught to walk. And they hit this marvelous age of two. And they discover a word in their vocabulary that somehow wasn't so prominent till them and it only has two letters. No. What happened to this pure little innocent thing that God gave us, this sweet thing, is now turned into Satan incarnate. (laughs) It's nothing new. That tendency was born in the flesh. My rights, my things, my this, my, 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 my. Me, my, mine. That's mine. It's my toy. My rights. Me first. Sin is lawlessness. So having to be cast to the earth, Satan now wants as many as he can to join his rebellion against God. Let's go to um, Hebrews chapter 3 quickly. Hang on, there's hope. We're just trying to show you that the depth of this is more than I did something wrong. Hebrews 3, verse uh, 6. But Christ is son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Talking about Israel in the wilderness. In the day of trial of the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, God's talking, and saw my works. For He saw that I was your provider, your protector. He saw that I took care of you. I was your creator. I was your deliverer. I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one that did these things for you. I brought water out of a rock. I brought food down from heaven. Gave you the best bread you've ever had in your life. I protected you. I was a cloud of fire at night to give you warmth in the cold desert. I was a pillar of fire by day to protect you from the sun. I was the one that guided you, led you. I kept you from the fiery serpents. I did all of this for you. In fact, if you read Deuteronomy chapter 7 and 8, he says, I was training you. I was teaching you and training you so that I could bless you more than you ever could possibly imagine and that the blessing wouldn't pull you away from me. That's what I was doing. Look at verse 10. Verse 9. For your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray. Look at that. In their heart. For they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath they should not enter my rest. Beware, brethren. Now he's talking to us. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart. This is what evil is to God. Of unbelief departing from the living God. I exhort you daily, one another daily, but exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Remember, sin is lawlessness. 
For if we become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence, firm to the end. Go to verse 16. For who having heard rebelled, talking about Israel, indeed was it not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with them he was angry for forty years. Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who did not obey? Verse 15 says, They hardened their hearts in the rebellion. They were stubborn. He calls them stiff-necked. They wouldn't bow their head. They wouldn't bow their neck to God. Romans chapter 1. Let's take a look at today. Verse 16 has just said he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Verse 17 says the just shall live by faith. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, the same qualities that were found in Satan, who suppresses the truth in unrighteousness because that what may be known of God is manifested in them for God has shown it to them. How? For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes can be clearly seen, being understood by things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that we are without excuse. Now, what he's saying here is, look, the issue here is whether there's a God who's the creator of all things, or whether we created ourselves. And he's saying, look, God's created nature in such a way that it's obvious there's a creator. We weren't, we weren't, when our daughter was born, our second child, I wasn't saved, but I was the first, we weren't able to be in the, I wasn't able to be in, my wife was there for the delivery of the first one, but I wasn't. I wasn't able to go in the room at that time, but now I can go in. I was in there, and when she, this child, there were, th- there were two of us in the room, well, the doctor was there, three of us in the room, in one moment, the next minute, there's four of us. I just stood there and said, there has to be a God. That was my reaction. I wasn't a Christian. There has to be a God. There's so many people I've read about, famous people, that got saved just looking at nature. Because you realize there has to be a creator and a plan. And with all we know now of DNA and all that stuff, it's even more clear that there's a pattern and there's a claim. There's a divine creator behind all this. So in order to deny that, you've got to intentionally deny the evidence. You've got to choose to be deceived and refuse to look at all the evidence. That's why it calls denying the truth. Well, I'm getting into a day, aren't I? Well, that's what's behind it. Okay. Verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God. Creator. Most high, ultimate authority. Nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish foolish hearts were darkened. That's where we are today. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made by corruptible corruptible man and birds and four-legged animals and creeping things. Well, we may not have those on our, in our living room, but we've got them in our laws where 
All kinds of living creatures have rights under our law today that we our unborn children don't have. Therefore, God has given them up to uncleanness, to lust. He just let them. Do. If that's what you want to do, okay. Got to move on. Second Corinthians, Second Thessalonians. Oh my, verse two, second chapter two, Second Thessalonians chapter two. I want to show you where this is headed. Verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. He still has that ambition. Lucifer, now called Satan, still has that ambition. And there's going to come a time when God's going to let him loose on the earth. When by most studies, the church will not be here. Going to let him loose on the earth to do what he wants to do. And what he wants to do is prove to the world that he is God. Because he couldn't prove it in heaven. So he wants to establish his kingdom here. Look what happens. Verse 5. Do you not remember when I was still with you that I told you these things? Now you know that what is restraining him, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of what? Lawlessness. The hidden deception and purpose behind lawlessness is already at work. And that's what it comes down to. The sin of Satan The essence of rebellion is lawlessness. I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. Because the other, what lawlessness really is, is I'm my own law. I'm my own king. I'm my own God. And of course the deception is, there's no way I can be a God. But when that's my attitude, I'm under the influence of the God of this age. There's coming a day when he will be revealed, his purposes will be revealed, and notice what gets revealed, what it's called. It's called, right now what we're in, is the mystery of lawlessness which is already at work. Lawlessness is at work in our society. Lawlessness is at work in the church. Lawlessness work among men. Why? Because we don't recognize lawlessness for what it is. Lawlessness is rebellion against who God is. And lawlessness is sin. Sin is defined as lawlessness. Because once you enter into lawlessness, it authorizes you to do anything. And we're living in a world that is, this is no much more, not much more of a mystery anymore, that is in the grips of lawlessness. Okay, we've got to bring this to a close. We are born into a world that has that same rebellion. It's all about me, the big me, the big I. This is why Jesus said to his disciples, in order to be to my disciples, you've got to do what? You've got to pick up your cross and follow me. What's the cross? The cross is a place of where you die to your rights 
and who you are and what you're entitled to. And you pick up who he is. The secret of walking with the Lord is the process of dying to who you are and allowing him to live his life through you. Paul found this and wrote it in Galatians 2.20. For I have been crucified with Christ. Yet he still walked around on the earth. He still did amazing things. I've been crucified with Christ. What's the I? Me, my, my rights, what I want to do, my agenda when I get up in the day. This is what I want to see done instead of what does God want to do? What's he want to do with my life? I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I, me, my rights, what I want that live. And because I don't live anymore, what happened? Therefore, Christ can now live in me. You understand He can only live in you to the extent that you're not in control. Therefore, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Matthew chapter 7 again, and we'll close there. Yeah, we'll go over there. I'm going to quote something to you. Here's the answer. God does not send us to hell as His choice. It's our choice when we choose to enter into Satan's rebellion. Because if you enter into His rebellion, you've entered into His kingdom. And His kingdom is already in the dominion of hell. The good news is this. Colossians 1.13 says that when we've come to Christ... We're transferred out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Then why, if we're in the kingdom of his beloved son, do we still want to operate under the lawlessness of the old kingdom that we used to be submitted to? It's a process of growing in Christ and who he is. Matthew chapter 7, where we started, we're going to end. It was here this morning. Verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many of you will say in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many works in your name? That means there was power operating in them. He will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Look at this. You who practice lawlessness. Verse 24, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them will be likened to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But he who hears the saying of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Same storm, same house. Different foundation. Different kingdom. 
When you're building, your house, the house represents your life. When you're building your life based on what you want to do, what you think you're entitled to, what you think your rights are, what you want to see out of life, what you want to see out of your children, what you want to see out of the church, what you expect to have done. And by the way, you, you can tell when you're doing that because the difference between what you expect and what you're experiencing is where you're disappointed. So if you find yourself upset and disappointed all the time at what's going on in your life around you, it's because you're expecting something up here and you're only experiencing it down here. You need to find out if what you're expecting is what God wants. If you take your will and you submit it and say whatever you want, that's what Jesus did. My will was to do the will of my Father. That's all his ambition was, was to complete his Father's will. But nothing and no one could stop him. No matter what came... At the end of his life... His testimony was, Satan could find nothing in me. What that was is Satan could find none of Jesus that was sticking out because everything was tucked in to the Father's will and who the Father was. The house in this parable represents your life. And the difference is, what is your life based on? Are you basing your life on what you want, what your plans are, regardless of what God's will for your life is? Because that's a form of lawlessness. I'm not saying you're not going to heaven, but it's a form of lawlessness. You're releasing into your life the forces and powers of the kingdom of darkness. You're giving Satan a hold in your life. When you have a will for something that's contrary to God's will, you're giving Satan something to have a hold of and jerk you out and pull you out. But when you build your house, your life, and it's a process, the Holy Spirit has to be involved in it. But it starts with a decision. I'm going to live my life for Him. That it's no longer I who live. That I'm going to be crucified with Christ. What I want, what has to happen, what I demand of my life, what I demand of other people has to be crucified. It's now what God wants. What God wants. And I'm telling you, He is so generous and wonderful and loving and protective. That's why things aren't working in a lot of your lives. Because you're trying to live your life on your own terms instead of submitting it to God. And that is a form of lawlessness and is a form of not acknowledging that you are His creation. And because you're His creation, He has every right to require of you and demand of you whatever He wants because He owns you. Didn't we say, I gave my life to Jesus? If you gave your life to him, that means he now owns it. Trust him with it. Trust him with it. And watch what he'll begin to do in your life.